All right. Oh, I'm so fired up this morning. I'm so excited to be here. I don't always say that because it's not always true. I try to only say true things, but I'm super fired up today. There's several reasons. I'm going to geek out because Trey's not here, and I can do that if he's at home with a scratchy throat. Trey, whichever camera you're on, he's watching right now. He's cat-pawing the keyboard. Um, do you ever have one of those musical moments where you're like, everything just integrates? You never do, Austinites? Can I tell you about one? Has anybody seen uh, the voice in Norway this season where the guy, listen, listen, Molly, do you, have you seen it? Or why are you shaking your hands at me? Listen to me, listen to me, listen. Google it, the moment where a kid named Jorgen Dahl Moe gets up and sings the cover of a Bruce Springsteen song. Have you not seen this? Oh my God, cancel church right now. You know how I know about it. If you look up The Voice, it's one of the greatest moments ever in The Voice, in the global collection of YouTube videos, it is The Voice. It's this moment where this guy with a backwards baseball cap just starts to sing a Bruce Springsteen song in his own way, and the, co the, the, the vocal judges were crying. Matoma, the great Norwegian beats generator guy. I can't believe I don't, I'm among people who don't even speak my language today. That was one great, I've listened to it 300 times this week. Send it to everybody I love. If you didn't get it, it's because I don't know you. I don't love you. Anyway. And then on Friday night in this room, we did a little experiment with a local guy named Will Taylor. He leads a, a, a strings ensemble called uh, Will Taylor Strings Attached. He did something called the Living Score. Now catch this vision for just a second. He'll take a composer, say Beethoven is what they did on Friday, and they will bring the poetry and the handwritten notes that, have, that history has preserved from Beethoven to sort of humanize the composer while a, a three-part string trio improvises with Beethoven melodies that you might know. And then they salt and pepper it with some full pieces that you would recognize with some written word over the top. It was transcendent, y'all. I had forgotten how deeply I love classical music. Christabel, our very own beloved Christabel, was, is, the, is the hot shot top chair in that little trio. It was transcendent. And then last night in this room, does the word Towns Van Zant mean anything to anyone in this room? Oh, my God. Butch Hancock, who fronts a band called the Flatlanders, old guy, older than dirt, like West Texas old. You can't tell if it's terlingual on him or if it's just he's really that old. But when he sits in this little spot with a guitar and he introduces the next song by saying, now Towns Van Zant taught me this song in his living room. Guys, that's what it means to be Texan. It was just, what, and then the band this morning, I don't know why I'm talking about music, it's not in the notes, but music saves, it really does, it integrates, it really does, and so if that's something you lean into, give that gift to your children. Um, that has nothing to do with this morning. Uh, there's another reason why I feel super alive and integrated and on fire, and it's because yesterday we uh, laid to rest our beloved Susie Angel, who if you know ANC, you know Susie and Juan, Juan wave at us generally sitting right back here. Susie's been here longer than I've been here. And one of the great gifts of my life is to accompany families in these difficult moments. And I'm telling you, at the, in, that, in that funeral room, that funeral hall yesterday, I stood with a group of people who have been so deeply impacted by her life. And my encouragement to them was let her live on, let her live on in the stories we tell. Someone who is so deeply connected to the advocacy sort of world in Austin around the, the, the community, the disabled community and all of what that entails, serves on those boards, writes those papers, grades those things. Somebody that rich, that has lived a life that rich, 
is just, it's a sacred moment to honor the passing of someone like that. Now, we're going to have a chance as a church to honor her on the 17th of September. Uh, yeah, September. It'll be a Saturday. We're working on the details of that. We'll have our chance to name what she meant for us. But can I gift you with a tiny story of, of what I remember when I think of Susie? Would that be okay? It's not on the notes. It's okay. We can get off the notes for a second. It would have been 300 summers ago or three years ago or whenever it was that we did the sermon series called The Isms. Was anyone here around that, that, around that time? Um, we talked about all of the great isms of the time. I, I literally, we lined up every complicated subject we could think of, and we just had them one at a time. Sexism, nationalism at the time, can you even imagine, early Trump era. Um, anyway, that should strike that from the record, Your Honor. Um, sorry if that offends you, but it was biblical literalism, it was fundamentalism, it was legalism, it was all the isms, and the, getting right up to the final sort of piece of that, Susie positioned herself right at the end of that aisle, and I knew I had a yelling at coming. I had a can of whoop butt coming at me because I could feel, Juan knows what I'm talking about, when she needed to be heard, she knew how to be heard. She sat right at the end of that aisle in her chair and she waited for me. And I considered an exit out the back, but I knew that would be <laughs> unforgivable. Well, I sheepishly walked down the aisle and Susie says, I've really appreciated the summer series, dot, 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 and I knew it was coming. She says, there's one ism you have forgotten. And instantaneously I knew in my body that she was right. My shoulders collapsed. I'm like, oh my God, Susie, you're so right. She says, I want a church that can talk about ableism and how the center is just out of reach of those of us who can't access it. She says, turn around and look at that aisle, this 80-foot piece of carpet here. And I knew what she was going to say next. She says, I don't have access to that because there's no way for me to get on that stage. Can you feel the power of that moment? I'm like, okay, so cancel your week. We're going to do this next Sunday. I called my lifelong good friend who's a professor, a seminary professor in Dallas who's written several books on the subject of ableism. I said, I'm going to get him to come in and I want you guys to have a conversation. Trey's like, we can figure this out. He goes on Amazon and he buys a ramp, this big ugly aluminum thing that sat right here in the middle. I don't even remember that Sunday morning. Anyone, was anyone here for that? How are we possibly a brand new church in the last 10 minutes? But whatever. We rolled in on Sunday and we had a ramp and it was a little bit flimsy and Nathan screwed it down and did the best we could and Susie rolled up on here and gifted us her life story as a way of looking at the center that we have removed because of the way we build our spaces. You guys, I will never forget the way Susie could yell at you, encourage you, and correct you in the same conversation. What a gift. Am I right, Juan? Juan's like, y'all, y'all. The truth about Juan is that he's still half feral, but the only reason Juan is as civil, it, Susie was the person who could just hang on to something gently and say, you've misplaced this one thing. Ugh. So my encouragement to you and to us as we, as those old timers around here who have been around a minute, as we tell the stories that root us in her life, guys, she's only as gone as we allow those stories to drift. Remember, remember your loved ones. Remember them. Hold them and, and bring them back into your consciousness. And that, I think, is... It's part of what I love about funerals. I don't get to do a lot of them. I don't really want to do a lot of them, but you get my point. You get to tinker with people's assumptions. We think everything is over when they're gone, and it's not. It's not. Those lessons live on. And there's dozens of those in Austin that Susie left. So, so yeah, I'm alive wired today because that was the real work of the week yesterday. Someone texted me this morning and said, so how are you feeling about Sunday, you know, meaning today? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. The real work happened yesterday afternoon in a little funeral, hall, little funeral place down on, what was it, on South First, but... Anyway, Juan, we love you. We do. We really do. And I hear that Juan is going to be sharing uh, his life with his family in California now moving forward. So Texas is going to lose uh, Juan, but you will, 
this will always be your home. Yeah, I love you. Say that again, I missed it. Oh, it's like straight Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're going to go full on, I'll be back, he says. I will be back, yeah. You will be back. And we'll hug your neck because only Texans hug necks in California. I don't know what else they do, but we hug necks. And so, yes, you will. All right. Okay, so more details to follow on that memorial for Susie's life. Wait till you get in this room as a faith community with the people in Austin that she's impacted. You'll see. You'll see what a beautiful life well lived is. We opened the mic. Sorry. We opened the mic, not the mic, but we opened the floor yesterday just for people to reflect something, things that they've learned from Susie. Movement, beauty, uh, courage. These were the things that she sowed. So, okay, moving on. So my notes literally say, morning, folks. So, morning, folks. <laughs> so I received a little lecture this week, a little, uh, a little uh, lecture, if you will, from someone that I love and I respect. It happened at radio, which is where I am when I'm not at home or here. I'm usually at radio. And it happened right before we went live with our Sunday leftovers on Tuesday at noon. And I just love that sentence because it's totally confusing if you don't know what those things are. But Tuesdays at noon, we do a live thing called Sunday leftovers that three people watch. Well, it was right before we did that. I dare you to watch it that we will be four, that we can say our audience has increased 25% this week, which would be great. But I don't run as much as I used to. When I was a younger man, I ran a whole lot more. But back when I ran, uh, I was into a concept. Chris, is that you back there? No freaking way. Can you stand up? This is what the man who ran the Leadville 100 last week looks like. Look at him standing up. How are you standing? I don't even understand. Who else in this room, Kevin? Did you, you're, you were injured this year. Who else ran it? Dr. Tim? Get on your feet, Dr. Tim, for Pete's sake. Look at this. Come on. There you go. Why? There you go. All right. Why would you refuse? You're, you serve on the board here. You can't refuse to stand up. Did you run it? Well, then, not all of it. Listen, listen. The Leadville 100. It, all what? Only 63 miles. Listen, if I don't get back on my notes, Trey's going to let, he's going to literally light my phone up right now. He, so here's, here's my point about all this. I'm so proud of you guys, by the way. If you're a runner and you know how to like really be in pain for hours at night with headlamps on, followed up by really good local beer, you want to get in touch with these guys because they have a thing called the goats, the trail goats, something like that. Anyway, I shouldn't openly invite people to your running group. It's, I, I ran with them one time and that was the only time I ever ran with them. <laughs> I'm like, I'm too old for this. But anyway, when I was a younger man, I was into these interesting training concepts. You see, runners are always trying to figure out how to push their performance thing. Now, I wasn't a highly performing athlete, but I was a very disciplined runner. And there's a concept. It's a Swedish training concept called fartlek. And it's just, first of all, it's a fun word to write. It's also the name of a piece of furniture at Ikea, I think. But it's this concept that basically says uh, you, you, you change the, you, you, there's variable paces at which to train so that your body doesn't settle into sort of a rut. See, if you go run five miles a day at the same pace every day, your body will do that. But the day you try to run six, your body freaks out. Or the day you try to run three at a faster pace, your body freaks out. And so fartlek is essentially this concept that says on a continuous run, you play with the distance or the pace so that let's say from here to the next block you sprint and then you keep running but you, but you recover on the fly. Or let's say in the next five minutes we're going to run at 10% more. You know, you get, the, you get the idea. The concept is called fartlek. 
And it's a way to, to sort of push your body's performance. Well, if you apply that same concept to leadership, which geeks like me sort of always do, and that was actually the subject of my conversation with, with Caesar at the, in the occasion of this little lecture that I received from him. Fartlek looks like this, if you apply it to a community of faith. It's the idea that we're always growing, we're always moving somewhere, but there are seasons in which we sprint, and there are seasons in which we back off the, the accelerator. Does that make sense? It, it, it's pretty intuitive stuff. It's basic stuff. But you see, if you know anything about me, you would know that I'm an intense guy. I'm most afraid of inaction, right? It's all about staying moving. I love constant progress. I think endlessly. That thing you hear in the background, that's my brain going all the time. I have to train myself to, to sleep while I'm thinking because I never don't, I ne I'm never done thinking, if that makes sense. Anybody in the room with me? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a factory fan, just, like, just constantly churning. I, I love progress. Well, the first marathon I went to train for 20 years ago, I didn't make it even to the starting line, much less the finish line. Here was what I thought. I thought this is how you train to run distance, right? You go out every single day, you run as fast as you can, as far as you can, and you don't let up. Well, any runners in the room know what happens when that? You're so injured, you don't make it halfway through the season getting ready for the event. So I didn't make it to the starting line of the 2004 Chicago Marathon. I, I, I had to reset, get healthy, and get some good training to make it to the beginning of the 2005 well, I wonder if you can see the connection I'm trying to make here, where we are as a church. You see, Caesar knows what we've come through as a congregation. He helped me shape where we went this summer. And we spent the summer pushing pretty hard, if I'm honest. I feel like there was some times when the pedal was all the way down, you could feel metal on metal. We were sprinting towards something good, and I think it matters. What I'm trying to set us up for is a very profound new way of doing faith in an interfaith overlap where we're not working on the assumption that everyone must be like us in order to be pleasing to God. And so we sprinted towards that goal. But a change of gears, you see, an intentional slowdown to recover on the run while we're still making progress, a, a backing off of the pace, if you will, might allow us to go further in the end if we, if we do this well. You see, the nature of Caesar's encouragement was basically this. It's okay to back off the accelerator sometimes. In fact, it makes sense. Well, that turned out to be a bit of timely pastoral encouragement delivered as only Caesar can deliver it. Because he knows this about me. I crave intensity. I crave hardcore processing. Theological, historical, philosophical, linguistic, all of it. Bring it all. Pedal down always for me, all the time. Which may not be true for some of you and also may not be healthy for me. All this to say, we're going to take a few weeks, however long this takes, I don't know, but we're going to take a few weeks just to recover on the run, just to marinate in the teachings of Jesus. You see, the teachings of Jesus are our natural habitat. It's our most natural domain. It's our major. It's the lane we run best in. You see, we're season two people, and there's no shame in that. And if you don't know what that means, go back a few weeks on Spotify or on YouTube or on Facebook, and watch what, the, what, what uh, Rabbi Blumhoff told us about season one, two, and three. Season one is the people of Israel, right, that give us monotheism as a concept. Season two are the people of Jesus. Well, season three are the people of Muhammad, and I'm reading into that now. But we are the people of Jesus. We are the people who live in that natural habitat. And so this is the question before us. And I hope maybe it doesn't feel like a speed change, but I hope that you see that it is. Here's our question. Why Jesus? Does Jesus still matter? You see, you don't mean, need me to point this out to you, but Jesus doesn't matter all that much to Jewish people. He doesn't. Ask them what they're doing for Christmas and watch yourself turn green. They don't reset their calendars. This is the modern era based on the life of Jesus. He doesn't mean all that much to them. He's not actually the completion of all their collected prophecies and messianic hopes. I hope that doesn't disturb you, but he's not to them. They don't see him that way. And so the question for me is, what do we make of that? 
If the world doesn't consist of a ton of non-Christians who desperately need to be who we are and what we are, or else they will burn in eternal conscious hell, if that's not the way that the world is, then what does the world consist of? Because you and I have to build another world. That's the world we were taught, the only one that existed. Does God speak the language of all people, yes or no? Or does the source of life, the ground of being, God, God's self, rely on a few of us to whom he speaks a couple of secrets and it's our job to go tell everyone else? Now, I have no idea how you intend to answer that question, but it is the one before us now. What I can tell you is that I've made my decision. I'm remaining within my tradition. I'm not pulling up my roots. I'm sending them deeper into the soil that is beneath me already. I've been crystal clear with you on this, and some of you are concerned. You don't like what I'm reading. You're not, you're not sure if I'm still a Christian. I, I understand these questions. But I still find more than enough built-in spiritual technology and teachings to stay put in this tradition. I love this, my beloved tradition. I found all the love and the meaning I will ever need in Christianity, specifically in the teachings of Jesus. But friend, what I have not found is the permission within my tradition to conclude that every other human being needs to experience the world the way I do, the way I have, the way I will in order to be acceptable and pleasing to God. That permission is not there as it turns out. You see, at 50, I no longer crave the sensation of being the only one who's right in the room. That doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Like Sean McConnell, the great poet and great musician who's played this room twice, says in one of his songs, I don't think everyone's right. I just think most of us are wrong, says Sean McConnell. And we're not wrong, hear me clearly, we're not wrong in the quality and the depth of our deeply personal passion and conviction. It's very real. Our stories are our stories. We're not wrong in how, hold, how deeply we hold that. We're only wrong if we make the natural then assumption that ours is the only normative, the only universal, the only right way, the only correct way of being in the world. So I'm staying put. That's my announcement. That's my final word. Right here in my Christian tradition, specifically in the progressive Methodist branch of that, I've made my decision. I'm here. Some of you have not, and I want you to hear me clearly, and that's okay. Some of you need a pastoral blessing as you go, as you leave the organized confines of Christianity altogether and head out into the wilderness alone. If you need someone to bless that, I will bless that for you because only you know what you need next. It doesn't alarm me in the slightest. You will be fine because you know what you need. Here's the thing. I refuse to shame you for acting in self-compassion. If what you need right now is some wilderness time, then do that as long as you're acting in self-compassion. Can I just say this in church? You don't have to have a faith community to have a faith. What's confusing about some of our children is that they don't have a faith community, but they have a rich attraction and a rich faith around the work of Jesus. That's actually okay. What isn't okay is if your leaders and your pastors don't tell you that that's okay. Some seasons are made for a kind of sacred solitude where you can only square up to what's in front of you alone. I know of such seasons firsthand. In fact, I think I'm in one right now if I'm telling you the truth. So why Jesus? Why not? brought us this far. We've come this far together. We're on the brink of living a different kind of way in the world. Why not Jesus? So with that lens, let's look today at our, t our text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. It's a lectionary reading for the day. You guys can get the app on your phone, by the way, if you ever want to know what Jason's going to preach on. It's, it's called the lectionary. It's an app. Luke, chapter 14, verse 1. I'm going to read you the story. Hopefully it, it, it summons some memory for you, and then we're going to chat briefly about it. Luke writes, on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely, it says. Now bump forward to verse 7. 
When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. This is Jesus talking to the crowd. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come to you and say, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Verse 11. And this is the point of his parable. This is what Jesus is trying to say. So he's setting it up. Verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the second part of this discourse has Jesus now turning to the host of this party and saying the following words. And he, he said also to the one who invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case or lest they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled. We hate that word, Luke. Can you just change it from the dead, please? Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay. What stands out to us here? Jake, you got the mic? All right, we're going to have Jake run the mic today. Trey's home with a scratchy throat. So what stands out to you about this story? My favorite thing to do now is to read Scripture to you and see what, what comes up for you. We'll just open the mic, and, and uh, the only request is that you wait so that the online folks can catch it. What stands out here? Yes, right here. you got to move fast, Jake. you got to run. Um, I just love the attentiveness of Jesus. Yeah. It says the Pharisees or the leaders were watching him, mm. but that he noticed them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think all insight begins with that ability to notice, like Jesus. You know, I'm noticing at this moment that you're actually probably right about that. It's just... Good, yeah. Jesus observing what's going on around him, right? Always wanted to take in all the extra commentary that's happening. What else? What do we notice here? Anyone? Anyone? See, there you go. Um, the importance of humility. Yeah. Yeah, the importance of humility. What else? What do you love about this? Back here in the back, halfway back. There you go. I think Jesus knows this is the opposite of what we naturally do, right? We love to have our people over, and they have us over. And yeah. Jesus is saying, think about it differently. Yeah. Think about including the people that other people aren't including. And <sighs> I love that. So good. It might be the whole, that might be the bottom line of the whole thing. Over here. Over here. There's a, there's a saying that's uh, it's over, uh, or what is it? It's under promise and over deliver. Yeah. And yeah, that, yeah. this reminded me of that saying. Yeah. I love that. What else? What else? Didn't you have something super profound, Lamar? <laughs> He's waiting. Why does Lamar always have to wait and build the drama? He came to me between services and he had this amazing thing to say. I'm going to overhype it here. And, and he's going to underdeliver here in a second. Yeah, I'm cheating because I. But I'm I like, why don't when we open the mic, why don't you just say those things? And he's like, oh. Anyway. I, I heard I heard the end of the sermon already, so I'm cheating. But uh, there's definitely this idea of kind of getting over yourself, right? And and so I was telling Jason. I was asking, you know, you know the Austrian composer Joseph Haydn from the 18th century. And, um, there's this, he, he experienced all kinds of wealth and fame in his lifetime, um, but came from humble beginnings. And there's this story of someone interviewing him, asking him why he always travels on the train in third class, which that was just a thing. 
And his answer was, because there's no fourth class. Mm. Yeah, right? Which, it, which summons stories of our Pope in my mind immediately, who still rides public transit when he's home in Argentina and who washes the feet of imprisoned Palestinian freedom fighters who are women during Monday Thursday, not the, not the red-slippered shoes of other bishops in Rome. It reminded me of all of those things. So, yes, didn't know that story about Haydn. I love Haydn, by the way, because I love classical music. Yes. Well, what that, it kind of brought to me with what you were saying earlier about, yeah. like, how we um, use faith in our own life and, like, what we take from pastors or our experience in the church and um, kind of the reason behind that. Mm. Because if we're taking that prayer from our pastor to lead us out into the wilderness, yeah. but take that as, like, a prideful stance of being better in the world we're about to walk into, mm. then mm. that's not really the purpose of going. Yeah, it's as if when you read this guy, thanks Jake, is there anybody else who's just, just burning to say something? Okay. It's as if there's no way to think too highly of yourself in the world of Jesus. It's as if it's just, that's just not going to survive. If you're going to hang with this guy and you're going to hang in these teachings, what will not survive is any kind of haughty self-promotion. Why Jesus? Man, who talks like this? Who teaches these things? Okay, so let's go back and take this a piece at a time. This is our version of Midrash. It's, the, it's just kind of how the text falls open to me. Verse 1 says this. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. And that's just a way to set up the story where I think Luke reminds us, Jesus didn't just hang out with the, with the outcasts, right? Jesus went to schmaltzy events too. That's my best Yiddish word for the day. I'll bring you one Yiddish word a week until we can all just understand Hebrew, I don't know. But it's interesting how many times Jesus ends up in company of people of high society of his time, right? And it immediately, to your point, Catherine, it says, when he noticed in verse 7 how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable, always at the ready to teach a moral, observing what's going on, always ready to sort of grab the audience and make a point. He's always, t he's always watching what's going around. And he picks up on the drama going down at what would have been probably the social event of the season, now, this might be foreign to us now. I think if you went to a wedding and mistakenly sat in the bride's seat, you'd probably be asked to leave. But it's, we don't live in a world, an honor and shame society quite like this anymore. And so it, it's a little difficult for us to imagine why it would be something that people would be doing and fighting over the seat of most honor at a thing. But apparently at the time, it was, it was a great statement of influence and prestige to be sat in certain places. So verse 8, when you're invited by someone at a wedding banquet, do not sit at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. So this is a parable. Luke identifies it as such, which means it's a composite of some truth, and it's designed to tell a moral. This is not something that Jesus observed. It's probably not an event he went to so much as he's telling, let's say one day you're invited to a wedding. Let's not make this mistake, which is simply the message that he's trying to say in Texas speak would just be, guys, don't be tacky. Don't be tacky. Don't assume you're the most important person on the guest list at any table. Verse 9. And the host who invited both of you may come to say to you, hey, give this person your place. You're sat too high for your actual value. You're, over, you're overpriced. You get what I'm saying? Like, like you've given yourself more credit than you do, and I, now I need you to move to a lower place. What an interesting thing. We assume that no one wants to be in the low places, you see, but Jesus is about to flip some definitions. This is always what he does when he teaches parables. We assume that there are places of dishonor because perhaps we don't understand what actually goes on down there. 
But if you listen to Jesus, the only thing disgraceful about the place of least honor is having to be forced there. It's not that these people are at the party. It's that people have to be forced to those seats who thought they were more valuable than they actually are. People who erroneously elevate their own importance. This is the tacky thing that Jesus is pointing out. Verse 10, but when you're invited, go and sit down at the, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, hey friend, what are you doing here? Move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Essentially saying, if you choose the lowest place, who cares if you get promoted? That's not the end of the world. That's actually an honorable thing. It's not shameful to be moved up. It's disgraceful to have to be forced to move down. And you see, this is a hard saying. Jesus had a lot of these. To be exalted is okay, perhaps even desirable, but that does not mean that that's something you can arrange for yourself, you see. And this is where everything gets turned. To be elevated is something that has to happen to you. It's something that happens for you. It's not something that you get to effect on your own. Then in verse 12, he turns to the person who invited him. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. Don't do what everyone does, essentially, Jesus is saying. I wonder if you can see this kind of kindness that you show people as an investment with a string attached. It's really designed to be your key into high society and places of social influence. You see, Jesus is talking about something altogether. To show kindness to a person of influence could just be a way of getting that favor in return. No, no, no. Jesus is going to raise the bar. He's going to say, let's give ourselves away to people who can never repay. So far, this feels like a provocative teaching, something a typical rabbi might do. But I wouldn't call it revolutionary, not, not on the face of it. No one likes a tacky self-promoter. That's pretty universal. But where Jesus goes next is really hard to follow, so prepare yourselves. He's basically teaching here that accruing social status by surrounding yourselves intentionally with people of a certain elevated social position, he's actually suggesting that that might be a dead end. Not because the blessings won't come back to you, because if you do things right, you'll make it into that circle. But that's, that's missing something. The fact is, if you're careful to bring people of influence into your private events, sooner or later they will remember you when they're designing their own guest lists. It will come back to roost, as we say. But you may have missed something far more important, seems to be suggesting Jesus, because eventually your social circles will be monolithic. They'll be homogenous. They will have a singular vision and perspective. And I wonder if you can begin to see what you might miss out on if that ever happens. It's the pleasure and the delight of hanging out with people of lower station that we might miss in the end. You see, the blessing is to be a blessing instead of attempting to wrap yourselves in the accrual of all your blessings that you think, that you're so convinced that you've been told that you deserve. You see, it's in the reverse. It's giving that stuff away that really is the blessing. I wonder, I wonder, can you see that? Because any old fool can accrue blessings and accolades and honors, but who will be known for giving them away, for scattering them among people who don't and may never have the capacity or the resources to return them to you? Oh, there's a different way of living in the world, suggests Jesus. And so here it is, and it's a little stark to listen to, to read. But when you give a banquet, Jesus says, invite the poor, invite those with natural limitations, the lame and the, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
This sounds like ninja-level party throwing, if you ask me. Jesus was a party thrower, a reveler, someone known for the extravagance of his downtime, but he often did it with the wrong people and it got him in lots of trouble. You see, people of no social status whatsoever were often in his circle and he's burying a secret here for us, friends, if we can just hear it. The great joys of gathering, gatherings like these may not actually be happening way up at the top of the food chain where steely knives are brandished all the time to accumulate and accrue to shine and garner attention. Nobody rests in that full contact sport. There's no downtime when you're jockeying for position. Oh, we know the rat race, friends. Who rests there? Who truly unwinds there? Zero people actually enjoy that sort of preening and posturing and performing for the praise of other important people. No, friend, the real joy, the real conversations, the real delight might be found back in coach, not in first class. Seems to me that this is what Jesus might be suggesting. The good stuff goes down where common folk are just glad to have been included. I wonder, do you buy this? Is this actually legitimate thought? Is this just... Jesus, Howard Sterning, the mic of his day, is this just rabbinical shock talk? Or do we actually think that there might be a better way of living in the world that goes along with the teachings of Jesus? You see, what a crazy, risky dinner guest Jesus must have made. How did he get on this invitation list? Seriously, he could kill a vibe. He could kill a dinner party. Anytime Luke writes about banquets or dinner parties, he's talking about the circle of empowerment around Jesus or the kingdom of God as the Greeks would have translated it. Then This is the concept that Jesus is always trying to communicate to his friends. And for Luke, parties and banquets and wedding feasts are metaphors. They're parables that teach a purpose. And all of Jesus' parables, let me summarize them for you, in one way or another, especially in the book of Luke, have to do with who's included and who's not and why. Who's included on the good stuff. So what do we have here? Perhaps Jesus is saying everyone will end up spending their due time in coach. It's unavoidable. The question is, will you see it as a blessing or will you have to be forced by outside forces to take your seat in 34B? Why, Jesus, friend? Why does Jesus still make so much sense to me? Look at the kind of community that assembles around his ideas. People who organize around being a blessing, not around demanding those blessings that they think or that they have been taught that they deserve. Jesus leads a train of people who embrace the low road, friend, the downward trajectory. People who are happy in coach, who ride in third class because there's no fourth class. So tell me, friend, am I crazy? Or is every book that I have ever read on self-help and betterment really just teaching us ways to climb the social ladder, ways to gain access and influence, ways to take what belongs to us, ways to get our blessings all piled up so we can achieve that top spot at the table? It seems like that summarizes nearly everything I've read and been told. Oh, friend, listen again to the teachings of Jesus. And then listen again and again. And again, when Christianity itself runs amok and misplaces the point when it becomes about the accrual and the taking of blessings, go back again, friends, to the teachings of Jesus. Listen again. Are you comfortable back here in coach? There's no special treatment back here. There's not even leg room back here, friend. But if you adjust to this space, the space where normal, needy, not posh people are grateful just to be included, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're perfectly positioned for the actual good stuff. So this final thought. 
I now see why the rabbi looks at Jesus as being persnickety and precocious. I get it. If you just give yourself the gift of seeing Jesus from the outside for a moment, you'll understand. He spends a lot of time publicly humiliating highly respected leaders, teachers of the law. But the essence of Jesus' teaching, and here's the point of interfaith brotherhood, friend. The essence of Jesus' teaching to find a home among the outcasts is also the main goal and the natural outcome of well-practiced Judaism. Friend, it has the same goal in the end. So whether they love the teachings of Jesus or not, or whether it's our primary home or not, it takes us in the same direction, friends. We are those who have been included by the grace of God. What is it about these low places and the beloved people who dwell there willingly that cultivates in us the kind of heart posture that sets us up for the good stuff? Why does the gospel make so much sense in coach? Well, that might have a million reasons, but what I can tell you At this precise moment in my life, this spiritual technology, this trajectory, following the downward arc, the ability and the willingness to take a place at the low and insignificant side of the table, friend, this is the very heart of what I love the most about Jesus. Paul saw the same principle in the life of Jesus. They weren't friends. They didn't know each other. Paul sits down to write a letter to a a gathered faithful group of people at an ancient city called Philippi. He couldn't have had the thoughts of Luke that we read today. They wrote just about at the same time. But here's how Paul captured the, the, the movement of the life of Jesus. And I rarely end a sermon with a reading of Paul, but this one just stands out. From the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Essentially saying, as your father, as your founder, as the leader of your community, complete my joy. He says, this is what I want. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. He's teaching the same principle as the parable of Jesus. He just lays it out there like a rhetorician, like a law mind. Verse 4, let each of you not to your, let each of you not Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And wait for it, there's going to be an exalting here. This is, we're getting to the same point Jesus got to in verse 11 of Luke 14. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name given to Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I wonder if you cup your hand behind your ear, if you strain against the noise of our modern world, I wonder if you can hear this refrain being circled back to you. It goes like this, empty Waste, squander, and gain. Lose, release, let go, and increase. This is the message of Jesus. Friend, I'm not sure we've gotten the content of his teaching right. I don't care what doctrine you line up as more right than any other. Here's my only question for us. Have we gotten the movement of his life right? Have we gotten the trajectory right? Are we on the downward path? Do we know that the way into the wilderness is the way forward? Are we willingly sat in 34B, the bathroom behind us, the last to get our ginger ale? Can we hear that melody coming back to us again and again, empty, 
waste, squander, and gain. Lose, friend, release, let go, and increase. Are we living our lives to be a blessing, friend, or to accumulate our blessings? You see, in the world of Jesus, the good stuff is often hidden among those who are just grateful to have been included at all. Why Jesus? Oh, listen to him. Watch what he does. I've been walking with Jesus a long time now, friend, long enough to recognize this simple melody behind all of Jesus' top 40 hits. It goes like this. Empty, waste, squander and gain. Lose, release, let go, and increase.